thank you so much for joining me on the same drugs. I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Um, I wonder if, if you can maybe just tell me a bit about yourself. Who are I actually don't know very much about you. Like I've read yeah. uh, several of your articles for Quillette, which I find um, really interesting and well-written, which is, of course, why I reached out to you and wanted to speak to you. But other than that, I know mm-hmm. very little about you. Yeah, well, you know, there's not a whole lot to know. I um, was, like, not academically inclined through high school or most of university. But somehow in, I don't know, somewhere in my undergrad degree, I just completely fell in love with learning. And nobody was more shocked than my mother when I started to get, like, straight A's and really care about it. So I went and did my PhD in, at U of T, University of Toronto, on Shakespeare, and uh, taught all, like always, sort of all through, and moved back to Winnipeg to sort of take care of my parents, and sort of because of a relationship, my marriage, which was, you know, going through some difficulties, and... Um, I started teaching here, oh my God, I guess about 10 years ago. So mostly I'm just like, you know, a teacher. Um, And I teach at the university, I've taught at the University of Winnipeg, at the University of Manitoba, and at a Christian university here called CMU, which is is just lovely. And now I'm teaching primarily international students, which is really eye-opening. they are in many ways less <laughs> sort of neurotic than, than your sort of average Canadian student. They have more of a sense of humor. They're more joyfully self-deprecating. Uh, they don't take everything so seriously. And I found it really interesting seeing, especially in the past five years, these difference, um, differences of sort of spirit. I don't know how else to explain it between the international students and my homegrown Canadian students who seem to be like in so many ways a lot more fragile and less humorous. And um, my international students, some of whom who have have gone through some pretty serious hardships, um, still have like a pretty robust sense of humor and, and, um, uh, optimism. So I, so I find, you know, my teaching really rewarding and interesting. And I started writing about four years ago, uh, in large part response to new trends in culture, uh, and in the academy that I found really worrying. So, um, yeah, so now I'm sort of streaming, teaching, writing, and um, and somehow in between raising two daughters on my own. Somehow. <laughs> so it's busy. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to put them back in, right? So you, gotta <laughs> deal you just kind of have to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do. And I teach, you know, like I'm a Shakespearean. My doctorate was on Shakespeare. Hmm. So. Yeah, it kept me sane uh, through grad school, that's for sure. Good. Like, two things kept me from losing it entirely. Uh, studying Shakespeare 
It was so beautiful, so filled with courage and forgiveness and redemption and all of these sort of big, beautiful issues that the Academy isn't really focusing on anymore. Um, so Shakespeare's plays and poetry like saved me. And uh, having kids it, well, while doing a PhD also saved me because <laughs> I'd be like sitting in class listening to my friends and peers talk about how like the patriarchy it's inscribes its fantasy upon the body of a woman. And I'm having like an eight month old kick my bladder. And I'm like, the things you're saying seem insane to me. Things are inscribed on the body of a woman. What are you talking about? It's literally what's happening. So it sort of was this funny experience of being in grad school um, while pregnant and breastfeeding and juggling motherhood. And um, so my experience of it was a lot different, I think, than a lot of my cohort you know right like so I mean so would you say there's some kind of like gaps between what a lot of young people are learning in university like maybe in gender studies or I don't know what what you would call woke studies (laughs) the humanities or something like that versus like real people's lives Yeah. yeah totally yeah totally I mean, there was just, there was just things that they're talking about. Um, And then I was like, I can't stay and have this conversation because I'm lactating and I need to go pump. (laughs) And it was just like, (laughs) just completely like it's, I don't know, it saved me from this sort of vortex of hyper analysis but also I was like you guys I I have to keep a human alive so I don't have time for this kind of anxiety Mm -hmm. so it was you know very difficult to to go through grad school and try to be you know involved and successful and participating in the right forums and everything with juggling you know two kids and then I came back to Winnipeg and um, not soon after became single and I still had to finish my dissertation and I had to somehow like tooth and claw it through sessional um, like adjunct teaching at the university. So it gave me a real sort of, it was hard, but it was, you know, (laughs) you have to do it, right? There's no way out but through. So yeah. it was, but it was like, good. I, lo- I looked back afterwards and I was, I felt, you know, s- somewhat um, proud because it was really tough actually. Yeah. And these kinds of things, I mean, I was talking about this recently in another interview. Is, these kinds of things build character, which sort oh, of, totally. I mean, sounds like a cliche, but it's something that is really undervalued I think in society today, because people are so intent on avoiding difficulty, avoiding being triggered, avoiding bad feelings, avoiding feeling unpleasant. Right. Anything conflict is bad, but conflict is actually the source of where we find out our toughness, our grit, our strength, and... I mean, it was so beautiful. It was tough. Like, don't get me wrong. It's shit being a 
<laughs> a working mom with five hours of sleep a night and feeling um, overburdened. But, you know, it's wonderful at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's, I mean, I feel like it's funny to talk about difficult experiences with a kind of gratitude and maybe gratitude is not exactly the right word, but you know, in some ways it is, you know, like I've said things like, you know, I don't, I don't wish that I hadn't experienced like an abusive relationship and it's because it informed, I mean, it informed my work because I was, I was writing about feminism and doing a lot of work around abuse and violence against women and things like that. So it helped me to understand and relate to women who were experiencing similar things, despite the fact that, you know, my experience was nowhere near as horrific as the experiences of so many other women, but you know, it's things like that and, and things like, you know, not being middle class or wealthy and having to like struggle and work three jobs while you're in school or be a single mom or whatever. And it's so terrible and unfair feeling on one hand. And you're just so bitter at everyone around you. Cause you're like, you don't even have to work. <laughs> I, got, I, I have to leave class early every week. Cause I have to go to my job. Like this is so unfair, but at the same time, no. like it really, it builds resilience and it builds confidence. Yeah, confidence and I but I do think gratitude is the right word. Um yeah, and like humor, right? I mean I can mm-hmm. lose my mind still when my kid like just constantly today they were drawing pictures for their aunt and somebody splattered paint on somebody else and then it was like utopia to pandemonium within a, a heartbeat. And I'm just like trying not to lose my mind. But most of the time you just have humor about these things and you just kind of like can laugh and be lighthearted and I mean my kids know I keep telling them like well you know everybody dies or like we live in a free country for now (laughs) and they have this sort of observist Kafka-esque mother (laughs) who's all like everything's irrational just laugh it off um but I think it's just because, like, yeah, okay, sometimes shit is really hard, you guys, and you kind of have to laugh it off. But, right. I mean, I do see, um, I see, like, you know, university students of mine that will, um, every sin is somehow the original sin of the patriarchy. And they don't even know how to define that or what that really means. But it's just, like, their essays are all, like, the patriarchy is bad. And I'm, like... You live in your dad's basement and drove his Toyota to university while he's paying your tuition. That's literally the patriarchy. Right. You're literally benefiting from all of this. And then, you know, so it's just comic sometimes how um, their comfort, their bourgeois comfort um, makes them a little self-blind. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because I think that, you know, I mean, I I know that the the feminist movement has been, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important political movements in history um, and an absolutely necessary movement. And what's happened is that, I mean, a bunch of things have happened, but I think that this movement has been 
become sort of, you know, it's, it's all about uh, theory and it's been taken over by the Academy and by academic institutions. And so we started, I mean, particularly in the West, we start to, I mean, I, I get frustrated with this just to kind of repeat words over and over and over again. And these words lose meaning. So like you say, like we, you know, in, so in gender studies, you're just writing the patriarchy, the patriarchy, the patriarchy, or, you know, neocolonialism, or, um, you know, I think there's, there's a ton of like words that have become jargon and they lose meaning and academic institutions encourage you not to use sort of like simple basic language but this theoretical language that nobody else understands and uses and so I think you end up with this degree thinking you're really smart and really you don't even have any idea what you're talking about like what you're right what do these people these, these young women mean when they say the patriarchy what is it that they're talking about yes Right. It's a very, it's a legitimate question. You just reminded me, I had one student, she was, she was very clever, but her whole essay, it was on Taming of the Shrew, which she hated. I'm in love with. That's my favorite Shakespearean play. But her whole essay, she kept talking about Kate and Bianca as agents, the agent, Kate, the agent. And I'm like, I, I literally can't even follow you because like, I keep thinking of like, I don't know, Agent Mulder or like, I'm just getting off task. Like, can you just say woman? Can you just call her a woman instead of an agent? Like, I can't follow your reasoning. And my mind, of course, is like, because because it's so frustrating to read, I'm now making inward jokes about it to myself. But um, I mean, yeah, but but it's absolutely gobbledygook at some point. And yeah. um, and and it doesn't even address like the experience of what it is like to be a woman or the experience of what it is like to be in an intimate relationship. I mean, she's talking about these two lovers and Kate and Petruchio, husband and wife. And it was just, you know empty and 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 so hopeless you know it's it's really hopeless the university is becoming to me an an increasingly nihilistic um and joyless place which makes me so sad because it was at the university and this is like in the 90s but it was that there where i so discovered uh things of great beauty that just moved me and now um like I taught a Shakespeare class last year and this is an upper years course. So this, these are still for a while and um, we're doing Romeo and Juliet and they just want to like sort of focus in and take apart everything. And at some point I'm like, wait a second, don't you guys realize that this is a love story? And they're like, I, I don't know. And I'm like, has nobody ever told you that this is really beautiful and desirable? That like love is this like incredible thing? And they're like, no. <laughs> and, they, and they were serious. And I just kind of lost my mind. I'm like, you guys, this is the sweetest fruit there is. This is yeah. it. This is the whole thing. 
And you've gone through three years of university and you've never actually addressed this. Like, so you're all literary students and you're, I imagine on some level, you've read some love poetry because there isn't a little bit of it. There's a lot of it. And nobody's ever like said, this is beautiful. This is uplifting. It's all been like, look how she's manipulated or look how this is a power play or, you know, um, so, so yeah, it's the, it's not just empty with the language and the rhetoric, but it's empty of, of, I don't know how to explain it. Like beauty. I mean, so do you so. think that it's that people or perhaps, you know, young people in particular are taught to see the world in a very cynical way? Would you say that's yeah. accurate? Yeah, I think that they think it's a form of sophistication. That it's, you know, I'm not under any illusions. My eyes are open. The world is a you know place of power and there's always an oppressor and always a victim. And that's the dialectic that we work within. Um, and I think they think it's very, um, it's well-intentioned, right? They want to be on the right side. They want to be like compassionate and ethical. Um, but it's, it lacks courage on some level because they're, reticent, I'm trying to find the right words here, but it seems like they're sort of reticent to almost be um, simply human, right? So that they always want to see things in terms of power and very, very rarely want to see term things in terms of generosity or in giving up power. And they always are very interested in reconciliation and justice, but they're never that interested in redemption which is very different from reconciliation or um, grace. So these are like, I mean, this is why Shakespeare saved me, right? Through university, because even in um, the 2000s, whenever it was, late 2000s, or like, you know, whatever, 2012, I don't know, whenever, um, when I was doing my PhD, um, it was pretty theory heavy, obviously, right? That's not that long ago. but I kept coming across these different ideas in Shakespeare that just were so different from, from institutional talk that, uh, yeah, if, if, yeah, who knew, right? Some dead white guy from 400 years ago. <laughs> Could totally yeah. Save me. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this, yeah. So, I mean, what do you think that the, I mean, so I, I, um, I did my BA in women's studies and I did my master's degree in gender sexuality and women's studies. The department switched names partway through. Um, And uh, so, I mean, so I, I had this experience of sort of learning to see the world in terms of power and oppressor Mm -hmm. versus victim in a number of senses. Um, And I think that, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not that these 
that power doesn't exist, that there aren't people in positions of power, that there aren't systems of power. But I do think that it sort of leads you to have an approach to life that is rather combative and very cynical. So it sort of teaches you Mm -hmm. not to look for, or maybe not even to be able to experience joy without analyzing that joy or like turning like a sort of negative lens on that joy. I don't know. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it's just, um, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to give up on the Academy yet entirely, but, um, you know, you always find what you're looking for. So right now everybody's looking for, I mean, uh, um, moments of injustice so that they can identify it and then somehow correct it. Right. Mm. So that my university students, their idea of a good Shakespearean analysis is to find a moment where Shakespeare's play has something sexist in it or whatever. Um, You know, they don't care that much about class anymore, but something unjust so that they can identify it and then say why Shakespeare's wrong. Okay. Maybe think that Shakespeare might not always be wrong and you might not always be right because he's kind of a genius and you're kind of 19 years old. And I'm not saying 19 year olds can't be geniuses, but also do you think <laughs> that perhaps we don't need to correct him all the time and that we could pr- maybe try to understand things, right? And this is a radical idea to them. Um, I was reading the Bostonians. I don't know if you know Henry James, the Bostonians. It's this great... Um, sort of satirical look on early feminism and it's fascinating so it's right it happens in um boston obviously um shortly after the civil war so it's placed even like in a a bit uh, later um earlier time frame than what james is writing in but these two young feminists early prototypical feminists their whole sort of study is to look at old texts through history to find out um, where women were like oppressed and then to sort of note how horrible this was. And this is done, it's mentioned in the Bostonians kind of like comically, but I'm like, oh my God, no, what was funny in the 1800s is actually everything that's happening in the university right now. Like, and I'm like, "Hmm, maybe the joke's on us because we just want to correct it all. But, mm. but it does lead to a certain impoverishment of, of, of outlook and of options for framing the self and, and culture and society, right? So that if you're always thinking in terms of oppressor victim and the narrative is always the same, and it isn't to say that there aren't oppressors and aren't vic- victims in history, but, but also... It's not only that. History isn't only that. Um, so it's, yeah, so it is, um, it is, it's sad to see so many young minds so, so sort of limited in um, their worldview right now. Mm. Um, I, when I was reading one of your articles, I was thinking that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, okay, so this is one of your quotes was, it in my own experience, men aren't interested in maintaining power and control over women. 
They simply don't see women as a group that they are oppressing or that they would like to oppress. And I thought that was actually important because um, while, you know, it might, it would likely trigger a lot of feminists who would say, yes, of course, like men aren't doing it accidentally. They're intentionally oppressing women. Otherwise they would like choose not to or whatever. But I actually think that a big thing that's missed by a lot of feminists, and I feel frustrated by this, is that most men really don't have any idea what we're talking about when we talk about either a sex class or, you know, or this oppression, oppression, because like you say, like mm-hmm. most men, like unless we're talking about men in like Saudi Arabia or extremely abusive men, then yeah. they don't feel like they're oppressing women and they don't want women to be oppressed. You know, they want women no. to be free. Um, yeah. They don't want yeah. women to be like having a bad time. No. And so they can't relate to that narrative. And yet we as feminists don't change our narrative. And I, to me, right. it's like, this isn't going to get anywhere. If you talk, if you don't talk to other people, like they're human beings and that they're not just like right. a theory, like this is a theory, this like men <laughs> as a class oppress women as a class. And I know what it means because I studied all of this and because I've been involved in the women's movement for so long and I've read, you know, endless feminist texts from the first, second, sure. current wave. But right. it doesn't make sense to uh, regular people. And if we're trying to change men or make them understand, this this approach is pretty useless. It's pretty useless. It for I love men. I think that comes through in my writing, how, like... Like, I just, I love them. And um, I had no brothers growing up, middle daughter, middle sister. So that explains a whole host of sort of acting out behavior that I had in my teen years. But um, I was very tomboyish as a kid and spent a lot of my, like, young adulthood or sort of later youth hanging out with the boys. And I really got to kind of get very chummy with them. And then I sort of understood them. They're not, um, for the most part, predatory uh, individuals, right? Like, they're super sweet. But I think what is more worrying to me is that um, the, the, it seems like right now the feminist movement really needs an oppressive patriarchy in order to justify itself so that we can continually sort of have this, I call it the overcomer complex, right where you continually need this enemy this this bad thing to keep pushing you down so that you can justify your rage against them so if you take that away if you say well you know like eh, most men are actually really decent guys and you know are on your team and they're they want you guys to have equal rights too and there's like some of them that don't but this you that, that gets mixed up with like capitalism and with a whole bunch of other sort of things it's very complicated um that they find that uh, out an outrage and offensive to um because to their whole ideology on some level right because it's like if you don't have an oppressive patriarchy what are we (laughs) and if we don't want the equality that men have well then what are we what are we and you know i'm always like well we're women (laughs) which is 
which is also really good, you guys. We don't we don't always you know have to um, complain if we're not treated like men. I think it's perfectly legitimate to be treated like a woman and not take offense at that because I am a woman. <laughs> I kind of want to be treated like a woman, you know, and I don't find that outrageous. I still want, you know, to get paid the same for the same job and stuff. Like that's, that's I think feminism has important work to do. Um, and especially in some, you know, um, uh, like develop, developing nations and stuff is obviously important stuff, but you know, yeah, I don't know. I like men. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like men too. And it's sort of, I mean, it feels weird to say that in like a defensive way. You're like, but I like men. I know. I mean, some of my That's best friends are men. <laughs> like it's like, but I mean, it's sort of, you do, you do end up saying that when it turns into a like, I don't know. I mean, I'm always, I'm worried about saying the wrong thing when I talk off the cuff, but I do it all the time. So I really should stop worrying about it. But um, <laughs> I, you know, when we talk about this, like feminist sisterhood and this, like, you know, women are better than men, or you should bond with women, or you should form like women only communities, and you should naturally want it. Like, why would you want to be around men when you could be around women? Because men are so terrible. And I'm like, but I don't want that. Like, it's like, you know, really, most of my best friends are men. And of course, I have lots yeah. of close female friends as well. But it's, you know, there's, I don't, there's nothing inherently better about women versus men. And I don't relate to this idea that, I mean, certainly I wouldn't want to live somewhere with only women. And I've had really horrible experiences in the feminist movement. Like if you want to try to convince me that there's like some like sisterhood and it's really supportive yeah. and solidarity, it's like, mm, no. that's really been the opposite of my experience. <laughs> I've been through junior high, right? So I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> like, well, I mean, those are teenagers. So like teenagers are going to be yeah. shitty to each other. Yeah. But I mean, I've had, I've had, I've been treated really badly by a lot of feminists, not all feminists. I've also like had a lot of support from feminists. But what I mean is that there's yeah. no, you know, women are not inherently like, I don't think women are inherently better or kinder than men are despite the stereotypes right and and i mean i find that ironically that kind of idea of like well you know women we'd all live in some sort of kumbaya more virtuous like yeah right some sort of like amazonian uh island of women um but what that actually does is a lot of these movements actually sort of to me erode women's humanity so I had a university class once where I think I said something so outrageous that like, well, a woman can be manipulative also. And this was like, <gasps> like my students were like, how, you, you monster, how dare you? And they really, I'm like, excuse me, women are fully developed humans capable of manipulation, of lying. Of remembering things incorrectly, of being sinister. And there's this sort of, and I'm like, hi, because we're fully human. Isn't that what you f kind of wanted? 
for women to be treated as full embodied human beings. So why are you forgetting that we are also capable of a whole bunch of horrible self-serving things if it, if if you know that's what it means to be human. Hmm. So I find so often that the that idea of like, you know, man, patriarchy bad, women good, it actually erodes women's um, dignity and women's humanity. So okay. that to me, I mean, these things are deeply troubling to me as a woman <laughs> who's raising daughters, right? Like you're full humans, girls. Yeah, and I think it makes it, it, it puts us in a difficult position when we try to deal with bad women because we bad women women who do sure. bad things because we end up either um trying to defend their bad behavior based on victimhood so it's like well she behaved in this horrible way because she's a victim mm -hmm. of the patriarchy or of abuse or whatever which you know is not necessarily untrue you know people who right. are severely abused yeah. and traumatized are probably going to struggle with like behavior and relationships and totally. you know addiction yeah. mental health issues yeah. like all Self sorts of violence like Totally. But, at the, you know, and, and then on the other hand, it's either that or we almost end up, we like on the left and feminism, whatever, write them off as not real women. So it's like, oh, well, she's indefensible because she's a right wing woman, i.e. a bad woman. So she's not, right. she's not part of our clan. So we reject her entirely right. from the women's movement, right. the women's movement, which is supposed to be about the liberation of all women and the rights of all women. And yeah. it becomes, no, 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 yeah. just for us, the good women. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, well, this, I mean, the whole notion of empowerment is, to me, uh, has been sidelined right now by um, some women's fragility somehow, right? So that um, somehow women being, like, tough and going against the grain um, can be seen as threatening to women who... Um, or actually somehow want to see themselves as victims, right? Or are triggered or, or, or are triggered by things. So that feminism to me is like empowerment. And it doesn't, you know, it, I mean, I've got some wonderful friends who are clever, tough as nails chicks who are stay-at-home moms and that's all they ever aspire to. And it's their, you know, I really love doing this. And I'm like, yeah, good for you. You're not, nobody forced you into this. It's your free choice. It's great. Um, I'm quite different. I like, you know, domestic life, but I also sort of like, I like getting out in the world and in, in sort of a more manly way. But um, for some reason right now, it seems like feminism, and it has less to do with liberation of all women, which is to me like empowering and more to do with like, again, identifying instances of poor behavior of men and saying how horrible it is. And, and on off, often this involves getting administrations or institutions involved in making up new rigid rules to control like men's poor behavior 
And I'm like, well, now you're just using the big daddy of the institutional patriarchal system in order to handle your your own self, your own sexuality, your own adulthood. And uh, you're not liberated or empowered. <laughs> You've literally just asked the president of a university to make more rules limiting your own behavior and the behavior of others because apparently you're not liberated and empowered enough to handle it, but you're calling that a victory. And I'm always just a bit baffled by, and it's not to say like some rules like need to be in place, but a lot of rules take away, I think, our encounters with each other as humans, right? And some, and so often awkward encounters. Right. So so maybe, I wonder if you can maybe offer some examples in terms of what you're talking about, because I know that, you know, like, if in speaking in general terms, I mean, I would argue that legislative change is one of the most important aspects of the feminist movement because women are inherently, and I don't mean inherently in character, but inherently physically vulnerable to men. So we always are sure. going to be vulnerable on a certain level. And the only real way that we can combat that, because like no amount of like, weightlifting and working out is going to mean that we can overpower men (laughs) um, is to change rules and to change laws and things like that. But I suspect that you are thinking of some like specific scenarios where these kinds of rules are maybe going too far or not helpful or. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obvious rules like about assault and rape, which we obviously need to have on the books. Um, you know, child um, predators, you know, these things really need to be on the books and legislated. But for instance, um, I had a conversation recently with somebody and she was like, Marilyn, I don't like how you're talking about sexual harassment policies because I was sexually harassed. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be insensitive. What happened? And the story was, well, um, we were out for drinks after work, and my boss had drank too much and sort of asked, oh, hey, do you like, you know, do you like sleep around with guys or whatever? And I'm like, okay, that's gross and slimy. And then what happened? And I was waiting for how he said, well, if you don't sleep with me, I'm not going to, you know, give you your hours in your job or I'm going to, you know, write up a bad report. And I'm like waiting. Well, what happened next? Where's the horrible harassment? And I was like, no, that was it. And I'm like, what? You guys were out. He was kind of drunk. And he asked if you sleep around with guys and you felt that to be harassment. And I'm like, I, I will grant you that's slimy. That's gross. But I'm like, if you're an adult who as part of the feminist movement has claimed your sexual agency and then a grown up says, do you have sex with other people? And you can't handle that conversation. I'm not quite sure where we're at. Right. Or like if a coworker is like, hey, man, you look smoking, smoking today. I like your outfit. If that is sexual harassment and it and it can be construed that way. 
I'm not totally sure. And then, and then in order to deal with it, you have to go to admin, you have to file an anonymous complaint. I'm like, how is that making you empowered? I'm not totally sure. So, so it's nuance, right? And it, and it's human behavior. That is, again, sometimes a man is like, what? Oh my God, she thought that was harassment. I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed. I shouldn't have said that. That was so stupid. Oh my God. Um, so it's so many awkward human interactions that normally I think draw things out of us, help us to sort of read each other as humans so that we don't become increasingly stuck in sort of modern self alienation, right? We know how to interact with people and, and handle ourselves. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, does that make it's, sense? yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that there is a lot of nuance missing and that there yeah. is, you know, there are a lot of gray areas. So it's like there, yeah. something like a man, a boss, somebody like a higher up commenting on your body at work, you know, would constitute sexual harassment in like he's commenting on your body in a sexual way, especially sure. if it's ongoing. Um, right. But then yeah. I do think that on the other hand, we have come to this place where we sort of expect to be protected from everything. And I don't, actually want to be protected yeah. from everything. And I think that it is worthwhile to sort of know how to handle yourself and to respond and to navigate these kinds of situations. And sometimes the situation is just somebody saying something awkward. Sometimes, I mean, yeah. one of the problems with Me Too is that, you know, like Me Too was really effective in terms of A, bringing down men who were like serial rapists who had been getting away with sure. it for years and years yeah. and years. Yeah. And B, it, totally. it seems to... Yeah. yeah, of course, he's awful. Yeah. But um, yeah. there's also... You know, I've talked to a lot of men who said, and this was actually really surprising to me, but I guess in retrospect, I get it, who were like, I had no idea this was happening to so many women. And I was like, what? How did you have no idea that this many women had experienced sexual assault? But it's, you know, as a woman, we talk to other and other women about these things, sure. probably more than we talk to men about these things. And as somebody who was doing work in like feminism, I had like a heightened awareness of what was going yeah. on in terms of violence against women. But then, of course, it, you know, this has become a cliche at this point, but I, I do think that it went too far in a lot of ways and it really weakened the whole movement because it became, instead of being about, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment, it became about unpleasant encounters, awkward men, you know, being hit on by a man that you don't like isn't sexual harassment. Like, it's exactly. not like it's like and it's there is a weird thing that's hard to talk about where it's like oh like do I even want to say this but it's like there there are some women I mean I think I think you wrote about this but I may be mixing something up sure, but no, you know no. like it's like you you seek out there's women who seek out objectification so they're they go out in heels and like obviously sexy outfits, which is fine. I like looking nice. Like I don't, I'm not ever going to deny that I want to look attractive to men. Like I'm a heterosexual woman. 
I want men to find me attractive. And so I do things to that end. Like, I don't know why anybody would pretend that they want. Like, but it's like, and then they get attention and then they pretend to be sort of mad about the attention. And it's like, are you, I don't understand. Like, if you don't want to be looked at, then why don't you just wear normal clothes? Like, I don't, what it, like, (laughs) like, and it, or, and then it's like, well, is it just that you don't want attention from that guy and that he should know that he's lesser than and shouldn't be allowed to look at you only men of this, like this men of this status or, you know, like, I don't know. It's sort of, it's all, it's a bit mean. Yeah. Brad Pitt and zero other men, Right. Like you're too but, gross. Um, Don't look at me. You should know you're yeah. too gross to be looking at me. Like there's, there was a young woman I saw, this was on like a New York city subway platform in a world, you know, once upon a time pre COVID when this kind of thing was possible. She was just like gorgeous. I mean, stunning. And she was wearing like leggings, you know, so you could see her like perfect physique. And I'm a heterosexual, like, you know, I mean, I like men, but I'm staring at her. I'm just like, oh my God, what a creature. She's gorgeous. And she turns around and on her backpack is like a hand giving the finger. And I'm, I just killed myself laughing because I'm like, yeah, that's the tension there, right? Like if you look, I think, I think the gimmick or I think the sort of pleasure for, for women who don't want any kind of male sexual attention don't be don't objectify me but there is a pleasure in if you are objectified by a man even if his gaze just like mine I'm not even a man my gaze fell upon her because she's beautiful but I think there is a real gratification in being able to scorn or scold somebody for objectifying me so that they kind of they kind of want the moral um, superiority of judging a world that might look upon them right as as a sexual object even though they're kind of dressing as a sexual object but they want to say to the world you see bad <laughs> you've just objectified me but meanwhile, it's like you can't, you know, um, my cat recently ate a butterfly. It was the weirdest thing. There was a butterfly in my house in December. I think it came in somehow with the Christmas tree. And I was like, this is a miracle. There's a butterfly. And then my cat ate it. <laughs> and I was like, well, you can't blame a cat for being a cat. And, you know, sometimes you can't, uh, this isn't to say boys will be boys, but you can't blame human beings for noticing a beautiful other human being that's fine if if they take it further and you know do something horrible that's wrong but to be um desired is not uh objectification it's that's not wrong i don't think i would like that still as an aging woman if somebody like looks at me, I'm like, oh, thank God, <laughs> still got it. <laughs> but, um, but I think that there is this like, I think that the pleasure for them, for, the pleasure for me is very simple. If a man finds me good looking, I'm gratified on some level. Good. Yay. 
That makes me I feel think... happy because part of my part of my understanding of self is triangulated off of how I interact with other people. I think that is how an individual is developed, which is why, incidentally, I get worried with, with blanket policies around sexual harassment, because I think that we actually need those awkward and sometimes uncomfortable encounters in order to sort of triangulate ourselves um, with others, right? We all need that as human beings. We're, this is why isolation is so hard in COVID. We're such social creatures. We need this. We mm. need this feedback. Um, but I think for a certain kind of individual right now, it is, um, and maybe this is what I just wrote about recently, a sort of narcissistic feedback where I want you to gaze upon me, but not even in a way that just sees me as a unique person or even as a physical object. I want to confirm my already held belief that you're horrible <laughs> for looking at me. And I find this so solipsistic and such a dead end. It's to me, again, this is nihilistic, right? It's just this sort of self enclosure that um, is hostile and, and kind of depressing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's tough because I think, I mean, I think it's natural to not want to be ogled or like commented on in gross ways. So and I think that's different than just somebody finding you attractive. And I think that we've sort of conflated two things. I think that we're conflating yeah. objectification um, that's harmful and degrading and dangerous. Because, I mean, if you if you dehumanize someone, then it becomes yeah. easier to be violent towards that person. We dehumanize people in all sorts yeah. of ways, not just through yeah. that kind of sexual yeah. objectification. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then it, you know, people don't seem to really understand the difference between, you know, finding another person attractive and looking or appreciating or whatever and objectification that is yeah. dehumanizing. And so, uh, you know, and third wave feminism has done this ironically and and in fact really made things worse, in my opinion, for women, because what third wave feminism has said is that sexual objectification is really good and liberating and empowering if you choose it and if you do it to yourself or if it's being done to a woman who's not conventionally attractive. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> then you're a good person. Yes. Yeah. Then it's like a, yeah. a morally good kind of objectification. Yeah. Totally. It's like an equalizing oh objectification. Well, isn't that, wasn't that one of like um, Helen Pluckrose's, wasn't this one of the sort of joke articles that they initially wrote was like how you're not allowed to think about me while you masturbate because that's a form of violence against me. And it was like, oh yeah, you can't. No person has the right to imagine you in their private moments, you know, without your consent, because that's violence. And it's just, I mean, guess what you can do in your imagination? Whatever you want, right? I mean, it's this rich place. And it's not to say that everything is like, okay, 
but you can't be judged for what you do in your imagination, right? I mean, that's Orwellian now that you're talking about. This is this Orwellian inward gaze of Big Brother that sort of destroys humanity. And um, the, yeah, to, to think that we're now finding that Orwellian nightmare desirable is terrifying. So, and in your recent, your recent essay, I thought was interesting because um, you talked about this idea of wanting to make everybody beautiful and that that was the most important thing. So it's like all girls and, and women are beautiful. You're all amazing. You're all great. And that this actually turns into like, this isn't really, I mean, you can probably articulate it better than me. It's not gonna, it's not really about building confidence. It's more about sort of encouraging this like narcissism and this sort of artificially inflated ego where it's like, I'm hot, I'm great. I'm the best. Like, it's like, well, everybody isn't the best. Right. Actually, some people are better at some things than other people. And the unfortunate reality is that some people are more attractive than other people. And I don't know that it's helpful to tell people that that's not true. Um, I think it is. I actually think it is anxiety producing. I think that the psychological effort to overcome that kind of cognitive dissonance would co- create such anxiety that mm. I'm like, hey, you're not doing them a favor by, by telling them this, like kids aren't that dumb. You know, I think kids sometimes look at adults and go like, well, how do you guys, all, how do you guys all believe this shit that you're telling us? that we're all, you know, special. They're like, like, I think kids kind of are like, what? No, this, this is a really bad painting. My daughter has one piece of art. You know, <laughs> we do canvas painting sometimes or whatever. And we call it the diarrhea painting <laughs> because it looks like diarrhea. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> Cupcake, that this is a beautiful painting. <laughs> when it looks like diarrhea. So, so, you know, I don't want to say you did a great job. Good job. You expressed yourself. It's like, no, and we've kept it because now, um, you know, we've developed a good joke around it, a good inside joke, but I really want her to develop a clear sense of um, humor, the ability to self deprecate, the ability to go, yeah, that might not be my forte. Like right. everything is, is, you know, good, good job. But I think with um, our culture right now, I mean, I, I wrote about this in the essay on beauty. It's not simply that we tell everybody you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. It's that we need all of culture and all of society to to affirm the individual's own self-image. So this isn't like a real picture of who we really are. The whole thing of narcissists is he's in love with an image. It's not him. He's not in love with himself. He's in love with his projection. So we have these projections that are ideal, that are beautiful, that are about, you know, great. 
And if the whole world doesn't stare at our projection of ourselves and right. affirm this, then the whole world is somehow at fault and unethical. And I'm like, we are so far away from reality, people, that it's worrying. Like, because like, I do believe in the reality of things. Um, you know, you drop a hammer on your toe, it hurts. That's, I can't just go, oh, well, it hurts to me or it hurts to, it's like, no, there's the real things. So, right. um, this sort of high, and this goes not just for beauty, but all sorts of identity issues. I think this is true, right? You have to always affirm what an individual self projects to herself or himself that makes her feel good or him feel good. Um, and it rarely is, I mean, rarely do we project a self that is like, well, I'm lazy. I'm sometimes petty. I'm self-interested. Look, I don't actually care that much if you're suffering as long as I'm still comfortable. Eh, I'm a little vain. I mean, that's who I am. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Right? So we're, that's really that. And that is hard to love. It is actually really hard to love oneself because like there's I'm a whole sh I'm a shithead. Right? I mean, I don't think I'm it's hard to love that. I don't, I don't feel ashamed of my flaws at all. <laughs> no, I really I like it. But I mean, I think that takes maturity, right? I think that just takes like getting right. to know just, yourself and accepting yourself. But I, I mean, it's like, I, I think I'm like a big fan of like talking about my flaws or talking about flaws mm -hmm. in general. And like, I'm a big fan of authenticity and of just people being human. And partly yes. just because I think it's so exhausting to do anything else. Like it's exhausting to pretend that you're politically pure or that you're virtuous and that you don't have <laughs> bad thoughts and that you're not judgmental and then you're not mean right. and that you don't like, like hate some people or that you don't talk shit and like you know what I mean like it's like <laughs> right. but we all do right. that like who what are you talking yeah. about it's so phony yeah. and weird and it's just I mean I think that unfortunately it's like a big part of female culture to sort of lie to one another and then when you don't do it they look at you like you're an asshole because if somebody says like oh like does this look good and you're kind of like eh, they're like what like it's like well I don't yeah. do you want me to tell you it looks good it doesn't look good it looks bad like yeah, you know no. Like, wow, isn't he great? I don't know. He sounds kind of dumb. Like, he's, I don't know. Yeah. Am I supposed to big up this guy who I think is a loser just so you feel better? Like, is that helpful? <laughs> no, I mean, that's what sisters are for, right? I mean, sisters are, sisters are good for, um, <laughs> for telling you hard truths like that. Um, yeah and I mean there's a line like it's not like I'm just you know yeah. you should you actually you definitely shouldn't just be honest all the time but I also I hate this no. thing where it's like you're like oh my god like you look so no you're amazing no you're right like no you did the right thing and he's an yeah. asshole and you know when that's not yeah. true and you're just sort of reinforcing bad behavior or you know you're pretending yeah. that this person is perfect and they're not perfect and you're pretending that you're perfect and you're not perfect and I don't yeah who wants to be around flawless yeah. people anyway I mean that's not interesting it's, it's very true no it's very true yeah I like horrible people that's totally those are, that's my people yeah
Yeah, I don't want to be around you if you're not going to be a jerk with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's true. And I mean, I think it's even Zizek who says that's what love is. Like, love is to be able to insult the beloved with impunity. And um, that resonates with me, you know, on, on some, I don't want to just be like a doormat, obviously, but I, you know, I like, to, I like the spirit of that sort of, it's tender. There's a tenderness there. Could you say that quote again? You sort of like cut out a little bit there to insult the what oh, with impunity. Sure. Yeah. Sorry about the, well, I don't know what the kids are probably sucking up all the juice from Wi-Fi. Um, I think it, I think the Zizek quote is love is to be able to insult the beloved with impunity. Oh, okay. So, so, um, I like yeah, that. I like, yeah, something, something about that really resonates with me. And also, you know, um, with tenderness and a playful, a little playful sparkle in the eye. Oh, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's like, the men that I'm most attracted to are always men who are like, kind of mean to me. Like, it's like, if I meet a guy at a bar, and like, we our, our flirting will be like, us just being mean to each other and like, kind of insulting. Yeah. <laughs> and I just like, I, I find it so amusing. And I really enjoy it. Like, I kind of like being made fun yeah. of and picked on. But of course, you know, by people yeah. who actually like you not by people who are, you know, Exactly. deliberately trying to hurt no. your feelings <laughs> right and there's you know the, it's not that hard to tell the difference actually so um, at least for me it's really not it's really not difficult to tell the difference between a jerk and somebody who is you know playful yeah and and a little spicy you know so yeah yeah, yeah, I, th I think I so too. I mean, it would it would maybe be difficult to articulate, but I think you can always tell when somebody's actually trying to cut you down versus somebody who's kind of oh, yeah. poking yeah. at you in a flirtatious way, or because you know they're your friend and you guys are right. sort of like picking on each other in a, with love. Right, right, and I do actually think that most of my university students still get that. Even the ones who are the most sort of, you know, tr triggered by the most things. It seems as though in a friend group, anyways, that kind of intimacy happens. I mean, this is this has a this kind of friendship and this ins insult trading has a rich anthropology. I always think back to like Shakespeare's taverns. So, you know, in Henry the Fourth plays. Or in so many of his comedies, he goes to the bar, the pub. And those scenes are all just like insults, just delicious Shakespearean insults. Nobody can write them like he does. And sexual banter is like, oh, oh my, clutches pearls. I mean, it's just, the, you know, completely um, lowbrow, completely gutter level humor. Um, but it's also joyful and it's also lighthearted and there's camaraderie there. And I mean, I did write about this in one of my pieces for Quillette on like hashtag not me, I think. And it was about harassment and empowerment. And in that essay, I wrote about my, my very early uh, years working as a hostess and then a waitress at a restaurant, kind of greasy spoon restaurant here in Winnipeg. 
and I was 15 when I started, which was quite young. I was like, a, you know, I went to like a Christian uh, private school, like I was pretty solidly middle class. And so I suddenly start working in a restaurant and in the kitchen, my God, the insults and the sexual banter that was happening in the back of house for the first three weeks, I was just in culture shock, blushing. I had nothing to say. I didn't know how to navigate these waters. I mean, I was 15 and, and just, I mean, it was relentless. So an eight hour shift every time I would go to the back of house, just <laughs> vulgarity. And I soon realized that this was like, you know, initiation into the restaurant working class. This is into the clan, you know. And as soon as I started like spouting out insults back, um, it was like this sort of joyful, like um, like a Bruegel pa painting. Do you know those paintings of Bruegel and the peasants and stuff? This is like from Dutch 1500s. So these, this kind of like low culture, sexual culture, heavy insult culture has such a rich anthropology that it's like, you know, um, um, radical and revolutionary actually in, in its sort of reversal and upheaval of bourgeois manners. So I really, I really like cut my teeth uh, in the back back of house at this restaurant. And I mean, some of these guys were like ex-cons and stuff. Like these are tough dudes. So I'm living this kind of class utopia <laughs> where me, a little private school Christian girl is suddenly being very friendly and trading insults with ex-con men. This is like, this is a dream of any kind of academic who wants equality and egalitarianism, right? Like we're there, but we're just doing it in every kind of ill-mannered form known to humanity that the university bourgeois culture would be shocked and horrified at how objectifying it was, how sexual it was, how, you know, every sort of anti-feminist sort of thing. But it was like, no, man, it was really funny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I love it. Like, it's like, and I think that you're right that it is in, in some ways, like part of working class culture, but it also is yeah. like, you know, I'm like a pretty, like, I can be pretty like vulgar and pretty yeah. crass. And I think a lot of that did kind of come from just like hanging around with a lot of men and having to kind of keep up. And um, mm -hmm. I think it's a very useful skill to have, but also like, I just like it. Mm -hmm. I find it fun. And like, it's, it's frustrating to me because if you take that into the wrong context, either with like middle or upper class people, um, people kind of like, will look at you like gasp shock. Like, how could you say that? And it's like, Oh, okay. I can't be myself in this context. Like, got it. Right. Like, can we just be normal people here? Like, again, I just, right. I just find it, I find it so exhausting having to present yourself in this like <laughs> bougie way or to say the right thing. You know, I've had friends who just, you know, you say a word that they don't like a word that they've decided is, you know, not, 
a PC word or we don't say that word anymore. And they just feign shock. And it's like, I can't believe you said that. How could you say that? And it's like, who cares? It's just a word. Like, and also, you know, like, have you met me before? Like I say (laughs) offensive things. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to attack. I'm not, I'm not, you know, you don't say these words with the intent to necessarily attack people or attack a group of people you're just talking and I don't know I mean I do you yeah can you not say what's inside your head do you have to keep what is inside your head to yourself and then say something else externally because I feel like that is you know phony obviously then then you're kind of two-faced you're kind of pretending to be something that you're not I'd rather people just know who I am and know that sometimes I say offensive words (laughs) I know (laughs) totally I had uh, a good friend he once said sort of in astonishment he was like wow it is really impossible to offend you because he was like, you know, going, here's the line of decency. And he was just catapulting right over it. And I was like, loving it, tossing it back. And he was like, wow, it is impossible to offend you. And I said, au contraire, it is actually very easy to offend me. Treat me as somebody who is fragile and easily offended and just watch how quickly that will offend me. What, I would be offended by somebody treating me as somehow too fragile to handle like an off-color dirty joke or whatever, or comment. I would be like, excuse me, you don't think I'm funny enough, tough enough, clever enough? Do you think I'm too weak to handle that? I find that offensive. And yet... That is what most of my university students are aspiring to. I don't mm. want you to say offensive things to me simply because, you, you know, I don't, I guess they can't handle it. And I'm like, doesn't it offend you that you can't handle it? <laughs> don't you find that troubling somehow? Uh, but, but they see it totally opposite as I do, right? So, again, I think that feminism right now in its current iteration is not doing young women any favors. Um, And it is certainly, I think, diminishing joyfulness and um, like a really robust sense of humor about their bodies, which are often so ridiculous. I mean, you know. Bodies are weird. Bodies are weird. They're weird. They do things and there's fluids and noises. It's really hard to control them. I know. There's it's a lot of weird parts. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think it was like, I think it was St. Francis Assisi. I think it was him. He called his body brother ass. Brother ass. That's me. Brother ass. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me too. <laughs> I find the... You know, and it's funny. And they don't have, they don't find it funny. They're like, excuse me. No, don't, you can't, that's, I didn't, don't talk about it like that. And I'm like, why are you so fragile and weak? And why do you think that's a good way to be? Yeah, I mean, I've always found the, like, 
bodies are beautiful and your body is beautiful a really kind of distasteful movement and also kind of like we're all just lying to each other because it's like I've never thought of my body as beautiful and I don't hate my body there's lots of parts of my body that I like like I see myself as attractive like I don't see myself as like disgusting but I don't I don't look at my body and I'm like wow most people's bodies like i've i don't like looking at other people's bodies i've never i mean i think porn is disgusting for a whole host of reasons but it's like i don't want to look at other people having sex like you look disgusting or you look ridiculous like it's like your body is gross your body's doing gross things like it's like I don't, I'm not, I'm attracted to another body if it's a person that I'm attracted to and I'm having sex with them or I want to have sex with them, but just a stray body or body part, I'm like, ew, gross. Like your skin looks gross. This body part looks gross. Your genitals looks gross. Like your hairy body looks gross. Like I don't find it beautiful (laughs) at all. And why do I have to find bodies beautiful? They're not. I know we're a mess. I know. It's, I, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I still, I'm, I still, I, I don't hate the way I look. But it's not like I'm like, oh my god, Sports Illustrated cover, here I come. Like, who, you know, very few people have that blessing upon them and even those people have gross body parts like sorry i don't want to look at their bodies either to be honest there's not a body that i want to look at i'm not joking like a stranger's body i think there is some like wonderful you know black and white nudes and stuff and photography and i'm like oh yeah that will elevate me like i can look at that but um no i mean just i mean i i think we're so wonderfully comic Right? We just are. Um, my mom, when she described uh, childbirth, like it was my birthday one year and she was like, oh, I remember the day you were born. This is the sort of thing moms always tell her kid on, on their birthday. And she was like, oh, I was so thirsty and they wouldn't give me any water because they were scared I was going to choke on it. Or, Anyways, you finally came out and all the nurses and the doctors were like, oh, she's beautiful. She's a beautiful baby. You have a beautiful baby girl. And my mom said, well, she looks like a bloody mess to me. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's probably accurate. But like, maybe you shouldn't tell your daughter that those are the first words you ever said to her. I don't know. I I think you should. Babies are gross. Sorry. Like, I don't know why people pretend like little babies are, like, beautiful, because I look at little yeah. babies, and I'm like, ugh, you look like a weird red old man, like, covered in a rash. Yeah. <laughs> and childbirth is not, like, this sort of goddess-empowering moon wolf experience. It's just, like, it's really ugly. It's not pretty. <laughs> like... None of it, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it isn't powerful and meaningful, but like, yeah. We're animals. I mean, people pretend that we're not, but we are. We're animals and nature is weird and gross and, you know, kind of disturbing in many cases. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. It's, um, I um, uh, but I like, yeah, I feel, I feel very much that, um, because we're missing so much of the humor and the silliness, we're, we're also missing um, 
joy. We're also missing like levels of intimacy. We're also missing deep ability. We, we are losing an ability to understand ourselves as fundamentally bodies. So people, you know, I go to Anglican church, or at least I did every Sunday before COVID happened and it all got shut down. But one of the things I love so much about religious worship is that it is uh, something that your body has to do. You have to kneel, you have to stand, you like participate it with it, you know, with your whole body. And a lot of my friends are like, oh, well, you know, I'm a body or I'm a soul with a body or something like that. And I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm a body with a body. <laughs> and I'm like, I am a body. Like, I'm not, I don't know this duality. Like, I'm a, I'm a body. When I die, something, I, I, I believe I'll go on somewhere beautiful. Sure, that's a nice thing to believe. Uh, but I will, my body is gone. I'm gone. That's who I am, my body. And it is predeterministic to an intolerable way. And I think this is one of the, the crucial issues of our modern culture too, right? That, that bodies are predetermined. And what an outrage to our notion of self and of agency and of choice. It's absolutely an outrage to those notions. I don't disagree. You have my sympathy and my compassion. I get it, but you can't change it, right? Like a body is predeterministic. That's just what it means to be alive. So yeah, you know, it's, but it's so fun and it's so delightful and, and so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I love this body. <laughs> it's very useful. It's really handy. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that, that, of course, plays into the whole gender identity thing, as well as there was something else you said earlier that I'd wanted to pick up on, which was around this, like, validation of you as you, you like to be seen. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say how you see yourself, because I don't actually think that these people who are insisting that they're like, beautiful and perfect and gorgeous or these like men who are insisting that they're women or girls insisting right. that they're boys, you know, people don't actually see you that way. You right. are just asking people to see you in that way. Right. You're essentially asking people to lie to you so that you feel yeah. validation. And I, at the end of the day, I don't know that that validation can really work because I think everybody participating really at, deep down knows that they're lying, right. but it's, you know, I've always said it's not, helpful just as it's not helpful to tell women like you're so beautiful and you're so gorgeous and you're perfect and you're amazing and there's nothing wrong with you and everyone should appreciate you and bow down and kiss your feet and they should all want to you also because it's like like no but right. they don't so deal with it but like and not everybody some people will <laughs> not everybody yeah, like right. it's life right. um but like, and you just like, you cannot force other people to want you or to be attracted to you, no matter what you right. do. You know, some people are not going to be attracted to fat bodies. Like some, you know, men who are heterosexual right. are not going to be attracted to a, another man just because that man insists that he's a woman and demands that the world say and treat him as a woman. You know, they're right. just, 
things that you cannot overcome on a basic level. And as a human race in the West, we have somehow come to this place where we think we can control how other right. people see us, how they behave towards right. us, how they relate to us. Like the great equalizer is now, you know, you have to see me as I want to be seen. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I wrote um, um, on in my last essay. And I was, th I was talking specifically about female beauty, but I'm thinking about larger issues that are going on in our culture too. But I mean, what it really is, is just like sort of mass narcissism or mass cultural delusion. And, and we're all celebrating it as virtue and as ethical. And um, I think the ancient Greeks, I mean, I said this in the, my essay, the ancient Greeks would find us very curious for these kinds of affirmation and validation at at every cost, no matter what, right? We're all exactly going to ignore on some level basic facts. And this isn't to say, by the way, that there's anything wrong with being a trans woman. You're a trans woman, good for you. Okay, cool, right? But that's different from being a woman. But why would you wanna say that what you are is, is not what you are? And why would you wanna diminish it somehow? So say you're a trans woman and then be like, and that's, you know, fine, <laughs> but it's different from saying I'm a woman or I'm a man or I'm beautiful. Just say like, well, maybe I'm not that good looking, but, you know, I do have cleverness and I do have other things and I'm loving and, you know, probably your life will still work out. You know what I mean? Like you'll probably still find someone and be married or not, or have kids, and you know, you'll be okay. It's fine, you'll be fine. But to keep affirming things that you, like you said, um, on some level when we know they're not true, to keep saying them, I think is the production of unhappiness and anxiety, right? Because you constantly have to fight against this cognitive dissonance between what you're insisting upon and what reality is. Um, that I, I think that would just be sort of crazy making in the end. Um, and I'm not sure exactly, as you say, I'm not sure that's doing anybody any, any favors, mm -hmm. right? So, so I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm not, um, there's nothing sort of puritanical. I, I don't think about, about holding that view. And yet it seems in this day and age to be so, I don't know, it's radical somehow and I'm like well how, where are we culturally where we're saying these things that are obviously true and that we all sort of know are true why is it that saying it out loud seems so revolutionary where are we how far from reality have we now gone right um, and I you know like I joke and I'm I'm flippant and whatever whatever but on a really basic level, I think that we are um, moving again, like toward a sort of nihilism that is troubling. And I mean, the world has moved in frightening places within the last century. It was the bloodiest ever. And um, most of those moves into sort of political tyranny and totalitarianism all were in the name, of course, of progress, right? And like, we're gonna ignore facts and 
move toward this utopic future. And I feel us doing that again. And um, I, like I said, I don't see a lot of sort of robust joy in my university students, typically. Mm. Um, I mean, it is there, right? But it's, but maybe they should just go work in a crummy restaurant rather than sit in university classes. For a well, year. everybody should work in a crummy restaurant. I mean, part of the problem that I see in our culture is that a lot of people who are dictating culture, who are running media, who are engaging publicly in political discussions and debates, who are doing activism, are exactly the kind of people who haven't worked in crummy restaurants and who are people who are yeah. relatively privileged as compared to the rest of the population and who went straight from yeah. high school to college or university and then came out thinking they were incredibly intelligent because that's what academia does. It's like you are smarter than everyone else because you have yeah. this degree and they actually have very little real world experience. Yeah. And so what they think about the world is based on theory and textbooks rather than on reality. And they do really seem to take themselves too seriously. And they're incredibly yeah. irritating. <laughs> right. I know. And not very funny. <laughs> no, not very funny. I think you need to have oh, experience no. like hardship to be, to be funny. Like, exactly because you have to laugh at yourself and be like oh wow that was really shitty and now i can look back and laugh or like what a dumb thing that i did like that was a mistake god i was so stupid like that failure is funny i mean yeah i know and just like oh you know i handled that so poorly i'm such an idiot you know that happens constantly yeah but um I mean, it's just so much of like our our comfort that we take for granted and insist upon is, you know, perhaps the worst thing for us. And I love comfort. Sitting comfortably is my favorite too. thing ever. I love a nice yeah, hotel room. I love expensive wine. <laughs> Yeah, I like comfort, but I mean, it's like, but also, you know, like I spent a long, like most of my life, I was like broke all the time and like, yeah. you know, struggling. So not only struggling, mm-hmm. I don't mean to say that I, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty. I didn't have a horrible life, but I mean, right. you, it's like this, that basic thing where it's like, you have to have like struggled and had some kind of hardship to really appreciate like comfort and nice things and having a nice life and being okay. Yeah. But I don't want students to like, right now I feel like a lot of the time the university gives them pre-manufactured struggles of systemic, whatever you can fill in the blank with whatever. Mm. And so they, they have never actually struggled and they never have, had to tooth and claw their way through life and life is hard and brutal and historically has been comically short and it's only now that we're like we have the expectation to die at an old age comfortably in a bed surrounded by our loved ones it's like this has never happened before in human history you guys oh my god if you made it past one you had already beaten the odds (laughs) that was normal we're the weird ones, but they, but you know, humans, we need the struggle. I mean, the struggle is what got us out of the primordial muck and ooze 
in the first place, right? That that's the life force. That's that's how we got out of being an amoeba to being who we are now. But now I think we're just like manufacturing struggles, and the and the students are engaging in them. But there's no real stakes in. They have no stake in the game. There's nothing at risk for them. In fact, they hold all the power. So that you know, as a sessional instructor and adjunct instructor, I am very much aware that the students have all the power in this dynamic. I have none. They can have a Twitter mob against me in a heartbeat if I say something that's just slightly too offensive for them or slightly too outrageous or whatever. Um, but they very much believe, right, that they're engaged in this like struggle, you know, and it's <laughs> like on the one hand, I'm like, I get that, I get it. Yeah, we need that, we need a struggle. But like, you're not struggling, you're just going now into the managerial class Right, you you just and you say the right code so that you can talk and recognize other elites by being also right and saying the right codes to other elites, and you talk about the struggles you're facing over your you know Pinot Noir, <laughs> and I'm like, this is not it's not an actual struggle. Yeah, it's funny because it's almost like seeking a human experience when you haven't had a human experience. Like maybe it's natural that they're manufacturing struggles because on some level we know that in order to appreciate and experience life, there should be struggles and that yet you don't have a struggle. So it's like you just invent one. Right. Yeah. I feel, I feel like that is actually a perfect articulation of what's happening a lot of the time. Um, but these invented struggles again, I mean, it's on some level, they have to know this isn't real. (laughs) I don't have a real stake in the game here. My life isn't going to be affected dramatically if some, you know, there's no justice for whomever or whatever it is. Um, but their whole sort of spiritual self is so invested in this that they can't give it up. Um, and I don't, I don't want people to have actual hardships. You know, if hardships are hard. <laughs> I don't want any more. <laughs> I want zero more hardships. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. Good luck. Right? So, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you're, I, you know, I tell my kids, well, you have, you know, two options. You can either have a hard life or you can die young. And that's kind of, you know, the better option is to have a hard life. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it's not something that is desirable, but it is something that I want, especially like young women, I want them to be empowered and tough enough to handle it. And right now with the kind of like, you can't say that it offends me. You can't say that it triggers me, this kind of language. I'm like, how are you guys getting equipped for what life is going to throw at you? Because it, it, it will throw shit at you all the time. And like, you know, if, if you're not being sort of trained to be tough and, and funny, um, it's going to be really painful for you. Well, and, so, and it's yeah, like, I worry about that. 
Yeah, and and knowing that you can handle it. I mean, that's one of the greatest things about getting older is actually that you you know that if you go something through go, if you go through something hard, you'll make it out mm-hmm. to the other side. Like it's like I remember, you know, when me and my first boyfriend broke up, I just thought I was going to die. Like I thought I was never going to be happy again. I thought I was going to be sad for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah. But eventually, somehow you get over it and you're okay. And then next time it happens, it still sucks and it's still terrible. <laughs> but you do know in your brain, yeah. like, okay, eventually I'll feel better and it'll be okay because yeah. I've been through this before and I can handle it. Right. Right. Yeah. So there is a silver lining even to aging. <laughs> I mean, there is. It's that we're smarter than everybody who's younger than us. <laughs> I wouldn't, you could not pay me to go through my 20s again. I didn't enjoy being no, in my okay. 20s. Like, it's like you have no idea what no, you're I doing. You you're what. totally insecure. You have no wisdom. You have no resiliency. Like, you don't have any money. <laughs> like, your apartment sucks. <laughs> Oh, totally. No, I get it. I mean, I had a, I had a, an outdoor socially distanced visit with my father today, who's 90, almost, he's 92, um, which is not young. And I mean, the way he handles this whole COVID lockdown and the you know, anxiety about it, I mean, he is, he's just like, yeah. well, what, do you, what can you do? And he's so like, as he, on one hand, he's such a trooper, but on the other hand, he's just like, look, like it's life. What did you think would happen? Nothing. <laughs> it's fine. So yeah, it's nice to see the the sort of attitude of the much much elder, um, you know, be so less anxious about the world. But anyways, are you out of time? Yeah, I think my kids, actually, they're probably delighted that they got so much TV time tonight. <laughs> okay, well, your, your kids are welcome like from me. Um, well, no, I was just like, I, I told them just to, like, go downstairs and watch TV in the family room. And they were so happy. Like, this is like a holiday event for them. So, <laughs> but Great. I should probably get them to bed. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for all your time. And like I said, I mean, I find your essays really interesting. Even like there's lots of parts that I like disagree with and other parts that I disagree with. So, I mean, that's great. (laughs) yeah well next time we'll do this again and then tell me all the parts where i'm wrong yeah there was more stuff that i wanted to talk to you about for sure i mean there was like femininity stuff there was your essay about like missionary sex but anyway we talked about lots of good things so we'll have to do it again i had a lot of thoughts about that essay too so we'll have to we'll have to get back to mission the missionary position some other time (laughs) but yeah thank you so much no problem. I'm actually, this is, I'm working on a book and it's kind of like, you know, positionality to use an academic jargon word, but I'm taking it quite literally in this book. So I kind of go through the whole Kama Sutra of positions and, you know, like literally it's like about sex, sexual positions. Oh, okay. But it's but so it's like the missionary one, right? Where it's like, I'm going to actually kind of close read this and analyze it um, and sort of experiment, 
experientially uh, look at it and look at it um, you know through some in some ways social science lenses in some ways sort of historically uh, how this has been figured historically I have an extraordinary chapter I can't I'll just give it away here I might be the only person except for uh, Queen Elizabeth's husband and Andrew Prince Andrew who has thought so much about this but there was a scene from season one of The Crown where uh, it is suggested that a younger Elizabeth II gets on her knees for her husband. And I mean, when I saw this on TV, my jaw just dropped. And I was like, oh my God, what would this, what would this be like? I mean, the experience of oral sex sovereign of the British Empire like so I've I've completely um, you know analyzed this topic so I mean <laughs> literally it's on positions okay and, but it is also on like how how they draw things out of our humanity right and how um, I really do believe that um, you know, feminism is much has much to say that we're socially determined, but and I don't think that that's wrong. But I also think we're relationally determined, so that our the relationships and especially the intimate relationships that we have actually draw things out of ourselves that aren't weren't there previously, where we discover parts of ourselves that we wouldn't otherwise discover, save for that experience in a relationship. Totally. So that yeah, so that I'm like actually. You know, it was kind of a joke. It's kind of a joke on academia because they always talk about positionality, meaning like, where are you on the sort of intersectional grid or whatever? And I'm taking that quite literally in this uh, project. So, so that now. sounds really interesting. So let, we'll have to uh, get back to that and talk about that another time. Do you know when the book is going to be done? Oh, or I don't it's, I don't you're know, still working on it. I'm working on it and, yeah. uh, and, you know, teaching and, and momming, uh, dog momming apparently right here. So yeah. Thank you so much again. Have a great night. Yeah. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of the same drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.